So have you thought about what that song is talking about? Glory to glory. So Paul told the Corinthian church how that when we spend time in worship and in the word, we are changed from one level of glory to another. So just because you got saved doesn't mean the whole package is done and complete. One of your goals every day and every week ought to be more like your Savior. Just going from one level of glory to another till someday we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. When He returns, we're going to be just like Jesus. Isn't that exciting? All right. I'm excited anyway. So, hey, uh, uh, Ryan Lockwell is going to read our scripture this morning. So, Ryan, come on up here as we continue the book of Deuteronomy. Give, uh, and let me tell you something funny. Uh, a few weeks ago when, um, you can use this mic right here, uh, when Jessica and my grandkids were new here in the service, okay, it was funny to watch Liam, the baby, because I play patty cake with him all the time. You know, patty cake, patty cake, baker's man. You know that. You did that with your grandkids and your kids, right? I have a certain, I do that with all my grandkids, even like the teenager one. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and uh, what's funny is he, he, was, he associates clapping with patty cake. So he came to church and everybody's clapping. And so he starts going, roll him up, roll him up. And he starts doing it. I'm like, I thought that was so funny to watch him doing this. And he, he equated the two. So, man, I tell you what, praise God for having little kids in church. You know, it's a sign of a dying church when you have no little kids around and you have no youth around. And you have none of those things because the church is just carried about, cares about their generation and they take the church to their grave. It's just a sad situation to watch. It's actually happening all over America, but I won't chase a rabbit on that. So, Ryan, what's, what's God doing in your life? Uh, doing, you know, wonderful things. Keeping peace of mind, peace of heart. Uh, you know, the stresses of life and having a new baby just keeps uh, that stress off of you and knowing that he has steadfast love for you. So, that's, that's what he's been doing. Amen. Good deal. All right. Well, thanks for reading the scripture for us this morning. Here you go. And there is an awkward verse here this morning, so that's why I picked Ryan, because I want to see him blush. <laughs> All right, uh, Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. If there's a dispute between men, and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given, to, uh, given him, but no more, uh, lest if one should go uh, on to beat him with more stripes than these, um, your brother be degraded in your sight. You should not muzzle an ox when it is treading uh, out the grain. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go, uh, go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his de- uh, to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, "My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his wife's uh, brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me." Then the elders of the of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say 
uh, and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In the name of his, uh, in the name of his house uh, shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. When men fighting with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is, be who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall have no pity. So I just say amen. It's crazy. <laughs> I thought somebody said amen. Right. I, and I just want to see Ryan blush for a second. Okay, good. 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 There we go. Good. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, um, all who act dishonestly are an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember what... Um, Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. Sorry, oh, my bad. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Therefore, uh, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the, the, mem uh, the memory of Amalek uh, from under heaven. You shall not forgive. forget. Amen. All right. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Appreciate you reading. Give me a hand. <clears throat> okay. So how many of you remember the movie The Karate Kid, the original one? Okay. So this, this kid gets beat up, and Mr. Miyagi, who is, you know, a ninja, he comes out and defends him. And he's like, can you teach me how to do that? And he's like, yes, I'll teach you. And so he says, come by you know, tomorrow. And so what does he have him do? The kid's expecting all kinds of karate lessons. And he teaches him to wax his cars. And he has like 20-something cars. And what is the phrase? Wax on, wax off, okay? And so for days and days, he's washing these cars. Wax on, wax off. And he's thinking, is this guy making me his personal slave? Or what's going on here? What does this have to do with karate? He said, you just, you just teach and you do whatever I tell you. So then he has him sand his deck in the back, and he's sanding, you know, and he's doing all these different motions of sanding the deck. And then he has him what? What's the next one? Remember? Paint the fence. Paint the fence, you know, up and down, up and down with the paint the fence. And then finally one day the kid gets, just throws a fit and just, hey, I'm not doing this anymore. You're just making me your slave. What, what does that do like this? And so Mr. Miyagi reminds him of this thing. Then he goes to punch him, and the kid goes like this and blocks and blocks. And he goes and kicks him, and he, he blocks this way, you know. And, all, and he realizes that all the little weird things he was having him do were teaching him karate. But he wasn't making the connection because it seemed so weird. And you know what? That's really what the book of Deuteronomy is. There's a lot of weird things in there. But if you will just do a little bit of digging, you'll realize this is teaching us disciplines for life. And it, particularly here in Deuteronomy, remember, this is a nation that is going into war, into a new land, and they need to be really rigid and strict on some things. And so they've got some really weird and rigid and strict rules because of their condition and their context. Not everything translates to today as far as doing exactly what it says, but it, the principles definitely are eternal. And it's in the Bible, so God has it there for a reason for us to learn. So... There's just several points. Let me just kind of walk you through them, and then we'll go through each one just for a few minutes. The first thing is fair and humane 
corporal punishment, fair and humane corporal punishment. And you'll see that the idea of being fair and being humane is the theme through this whole chapter. Fair and humane to animals. Number three, fair and humane to your family. Number four, fair and humane avoiding excessive force. Number five, um, fair and humane in your business practices. And number six, fair and humane unlike your enemies, specifically talking about Amalek. So let's talk about the first one, corporal punishment. Punishing with physical force. It says if there's a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges, plural, notice it's plural, okay, which so that there's no vendetta, you can't just bribe one judge, you've got to get, and in most of these situations there was three judges, uh, and, the, and so there was, there was a plurality there to help keep justice, and they be, decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, you know, laying the charge on who, where it belongs, and it says, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge, singular, because only one person can actually do the beating, not all three, okay? And he's the one that's going to decide what is proportionate. Think about what's being taught there. It's easy for you to say, hey, yeah, give him 80, when you're not the one doing it. But if you're the one doing it, you're like, oh, man, I really don't want to do this. I mean, you, you don't even like to give your kids a spank, let alone beat someone on the back here. And again, you may, you may be squirming in your seat as a, from your Western civilization, American thinking. But again, realize this is, this, what's going on here is in this context. We'll talk about more in a minute. What, is this necessary or not necessary? But it's in proportion. So let's say, for example, rape was the death penalty. But let's say a guy attempted rape. And they say, okay, you know, did he beat the girl pretty bad? And, he, and someone else came and intervened, or what is fault? So the, the judge might decide, you know what, 20, la 20 beatings with the rod, or maybe just one really hard if it was a minor offense. And that judge is going to decide something that's proportionate and something that's fair. Now, let me remind you of this. Whenever you read something weird in the Bible, especially in Deuteronomy, realize it's because of weird things that were happening in the world that God is trying to correct. Okay? So just keep that in mind as we, as we move forward with this. So he says... For example, Solomon talks about this, a whip for the horse, you know, we still have the Kentucky Derby, and they, they smack the horses to make them go, it's not abuse, there's nothing wrong with that, some people might question that, but you put a bridle on a donkey, you put a bit in its mouth, some people might think that's cruel, but it makes the horse, and it makes the donkey do what it's supposed to do, and if you want to get a fool to do what it's supposed to do, the Bible says you use a rod, okay, now, your grandma called this a switch, <laughs> remember, how many of you had to go pick your own switch, remember that, okay, and so, and see, you can question whether or not you should spank your children or not. I believe that if you do it in a loving way, in a very measured way, and it's not abuse, it's good for your kids. And if you want to argue to the obvious, to the, to the other side, just look at the kids who are not being spanked versus the ones who are. Enough said. But I want you to notice, what is missing in the promised land? As we've studied 25 chapters now, read through 25 chapters of Deuteronomy, there's something major that's missing when it comes to discipline. Anybody have a guess? And this didn't even occur to me until till yesterday. Prison. Jail. Nowhere did you see, with all these different cases, they're saying, you know, if someone does this, they shall be stoned. If this, someone does this, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If someone does this, you, 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 they get so many beatings on the back, whatever it may be. And then you see, nowhere does it say, and you will sentence this person to one year in jail, 10 years in jail, a life to pr imprisonment. 
When you're wandering through the wilderness and you're about to go into, you're about to conquer a promised land and God's using you to punish evil people who are abusing women and children and sacrificing their children and God's going to use you to destroy them and take over their land, you don't have time to build jails. You don't have time for penitentiaries. That's an expensive process. And here it's basically what God is teaching is someone steals something, someone attempts a rape, someone does attempted murder. You don't have time to put them in jail. You give them a beating that they will not forget, and guess what? They probably will never do it again. And guess what else? They probably will never do it in the first place because they've seen it happen. Because these were public things to where, you know, you walk by and your 12-year-old son say, Dad, man, what did that guy do? Man, he tried to steal that guy's cow, you know? And so he's getting eight lashes on his back or eight beating with a rod. It wasn't with a whip, with a rod. And like, oh, that kid would be like, man, I'm never going to steal a piece of candy or anything. You know, I don't want that to happen to me. And a lot of what you saw that God was doing was a deterrent. And I believe that it, it deterrence. I think what's happening in our American system is, it's like Dr. Martin Luther King said, delayed justice is an injustice. If you take seven years to convict someone of a crime, how does that teach anybody anything? You know, our, our system needs to be speedy and processed. It needs to be fast, but it's not. And nobody even knows what, when they hear about these crimes on the television every night, but you never hear what the sentence was, rarely, or you see that person suffering. In fact, what you, if you hear it, it's just like they got eight years and they got out early for good behavior, so they're only in jail watching cable television and lifting weights and playing basketball for five years. And so you see, now, again, there are parts of our prison system that are way too unfair. There's a whole lot of people in prison and people who've been executed who were not guilty as we see DNA cases coming up. And unfortunately, the majority of them are minorities, which it makes it even more reinforces the whole idea that big parts of our system are racist. All that, and you know what the Bible's saying? Forget the prisons. If you've got two or three witnesses, which if you have one witness, forget it. There's no crime. The, the benefit of the doubt was to the accused. They were getting a very fair trial. There had to be two or three witnesses. The witnesses had to be questioned. And we've gone over the whole legal process before, how that when someone was convicted, they were very much proven to be guilty. There had to be lots of evidence and a very strong case. But the Bible, here in Deuteronomy, for these people going to the promised lands, God's like, we don't have time for prisons. You either, if you did something worthy of dying, you're going to be executed. If you did something pretty bad but not worthy of death, we're going to beat you publicly and make you never wish you'd ever done it again. And you know what, there's, there's some merit there because, again, the whole idea of putting people away for life, it just seems like, I don't know, I don't know what else to say, but a waste of resources. And I don't think it teaches that person anything. You have people, and this is where I'm, I'm almost like a liberal when it comes to, like, drugs. I think that drugs should be treated totally as a separate crime. You take someone who went to a party and was foolish and tried crack, and they made a really dumb decision, but now they're hooked. And so now they're stealing from everybody and anybody to get it. And next thing you know, they're on the streets homeless, and then they get busted for something. And now they get put in with rapists and murderers because they had a drug problem over here. You know, here they're hurting themselves. And man, they're, and again, kids don't think I'm downplaying drugs. It'll mess up your life. But how is that the same as a guy over here who raped and murdered a little girl and slit her throat? How, why does this guy belong in here with this guy? So you, know what, you know what this guy does, the drug dealer or the drug user? He ends up learning how to be a rapist and a murderer and how to get away with it next time and how to do this. And, and, and he also is forced to probably join a gang based on the color of his skin so he doesn't get raped and, and beat up in jail. 
and all kinds of horrible stuff in our, in our system, not to mention if there's crooked uh, um, guard keepers that are abusing the prisoners. I mean, it's just, you put them in a cesspool. Whereas if you could just say, hey, give the guy 10 beatings on his back and tell him never do it again. And just go back to life being a productive person and go back to work. Anyway, I, there's a lot of principles in there. You can argue with me if you want on some of this. Again, it, it begs more questions than answers, probably. Just so you don't think that this is, the Bible is being weird, talking about giving a beating. Here's countries in the world that still use caning. Okay, basically a large switch where you beat someone on the back. And these are not third, all third world countries. Okay, these, these are some modern places. In fact, there was a very famous case about 12 years ago where a young American kid, I think he was 19 years old, spray painted the side of a building. And they arrested him, and they were going to beat him. And the United States tried to intervene. Like, no, please don't give our spoiled brat a beating. Please don't. You know, we don't do that to kids in America, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, you can have them when we're done beating them. And they beat him. And you know, I don't think that kid's ever going to do that again. So I, 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 don't have, I actually don't have a big problem with that. And you notice the problem, the bottom two are for juveniles only, which is interesting. Um, but again, you, if you're squirming and having a hard time with this, just let's compare. Singapore, who's most famous for doing the caning, their murder rate is less than a third of incident before every 100,000 people. We have five murders for every 100,000 people in America. 15 times more the murder rate than Singapore. Okay? Uh, the rape rate, for every 100,000 people, there's 118 accusations of rape. In the United States, there's 84,767 incidents of rape for every 100,000. I mean, it's going on all over the place. It's, it's just insane. Um, Actually, I'm sorry, scratch it. That's, those are annual rates, annual rates, okay? Um, violent crime. Singapore is ranked 161st out of 171 countries in, in violent crime. We're ranked number one because we don't spank, because we don't punish. We will just send you to jail and let you watch cable television. Drug use. It's almost non-existent because if you get caught with drugs in Singapore, they will beat you publicly. So people just don't do drugs. In America, 13.7% of the population doing drugs. Okay? Uh, you can sit there and say whether it works or doesn't work. Again, I'm not saying let's pass laws to beat people publicly. I'm just saying I'm not necessarily against it. I don't know. I just think the principle is there, though, that there's some punishments that need to be physical and not just locking away for like adult timeout. Uh, it does limit it to 40 stripes, maybe given, and not more. Now, again, if you think, gosh, that sounds really harsh, again, go with, stay with me here. It says, uh, lest if one should go on to beat him more than stripes and knees, your brother be degraded. Notice the process was not to treat the person like an animal or to, to, to dehumanize them. It was basically to say, hey, we're punishing you for what you did wrong, but we still believe in you as a person, and we're not going to humiliate you or degrade you. Now, again, this is written in 1400 B.C., 1400 years before Christ. Let's just do some comparison here and put a, put a little context on it. Okay, the Code of Hammurabi, which was more of a Babylonian law, similar to what Moses gave, but it never quite caught on like Moses' did because Hammurabi wasn't inspired by God and Moses was. But Code number 202 says, if an Awilu, which was a, a person with dignity and class because they had a class system, there was the... The, the, the royalty, there was the, the, the elite, and there was the middle class, and there was the poor, and then there was slaves. And they treated people with different laws on different levels. By the way, that's still happening in India. The caste system is supposed to be illegal, but it still goes on all the time. 
Well, they had different laws for different people. Moses, through the inspiration of God, wiped all that out. They said, we don't care if you're a slave or you're the king. All the laws apply equally to everybody. And that's where America gets it, from the word of God. And it says, if, if an Awilu should strike the cheek of another Awilu, in other words, one elite person smacks another elite person uh, of, high, of a status higher than his own, they're both in the upper echelon, he shall be flogged in the public assembly 60 stripes with an ox whip. Not just a cane or you know, basically a big switch on the back. We're going to use a whip that we'd use on an ox, and you're going to get 60 of them. And so the Bible saying, no, 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 no. We're bringing it down to 40, and don't you dare go over that. Okay, Let, just, let's get a little more context here. Um, the Quran to this day still says this, and many Muslim countries, the punishment for alcoholism and public attack, intoxication from the Hadith is 80 lashes with a whip breaking skin and bleeding, public intoxication. This still happens in Afghanistan and other predominantly Muslim countries. 80. And the Bible says, no, no, no. 40 with a rod. We're, we're just trying to put bruises on the back. We're not trying to bloody the person. Um, first century Jews, okay, uh, they practiced 40, like the Bible says, minus one. Because they were so strict that they didn't want to lose count and, exact, and accidentally do 41 because then that'd be like the curse of God upon us. So like, okay, we'll have 39 just to be on the safe side. And so Paul says five times he was beaten, 39 lashes. I don't know what the Apostle Paul looked like, but I know what his back looked like. Think about that. This is how much this man believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it was true, that the resurrection of Christ was true, that he don't care. You can beat me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still preach. You can stone me. I'm still going to preach. You can, you can beat me with a whip or with rods. That's not even counting the ones with rods the other three times. So with a whip, do the math on that. Five times 39, 195, okay? That you're talking about a lot of scars on this man's back before the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's go to the next point. Fair and humane treatment to animals. It says you shall not muzzle an ox. So you got a, um, an ox on a circular uh, grinding mill, and he's grinding, and the, and the stone behind him on the other side of him is going over the grain and crushing it. If he wants to bend down and eat some because he's hungry, don't muzzle him and say, you can't eat that grain. And the ox like, I'm the one treading it out, doing all the work. Why would I not be able to eat from this? And the Bible says, treat your animal with dignity. Treat your animal. Even animals deserve to be treated properly. And what's interesting, in the New Testament, Paul refers to this to people who are in ministry, that if their work is at a certain level, they deserve to be paid for it because you don't want to muzzle the ox. And that's the verse that he quotes there. Again, Deuteronomy is the most quoted book of the Bible in the Bible. And, so it's, and not to mention our Constitution. So let me ask you a question. What is the difference between stepping on an ant and killing a dog? And when I say killing a dog, I'm not talking about putting it down humanely. I'm talking about dog fights or being cruel to an animal. What is the difference between stepping on an ant and killing a dog? Now, some religions of the world would say there is no difference. But the Bible says there is. Okay? Interesting point here while you're thinking about that. Jonah didn't want to preach to the Ninevites. And God said, why would you not have compassion on 120,000 people not to mention 250,000 head of cattle. God was even saying, hey, I don't want to kill the people. I don't even want to kill their cattle. Okay? And the Bible talks about treating oxen, cattle, 
livestock humanely. It doesn't say anything about stepping on grasshoppers or ants. What's the difference between the two species? Anybody know? Robert, go ahead. On, on behalf of the, the person doing it, okay. Yeah, that's a great, excellent point. You know, if a wasp comes in my house and I spray it and kill it, I see it as an intruder. Okay, I, is that where you're going with that? Okay, so let's say, all right, thank you for clarifying that for me. So let's say the intention is delivered. You step on an ant, you kill a dog. Why do we, con I, would we agree that we consider the, the killing the dog much more uh, disgusting than stepping on an ant? Okay, why? Charles, did you have an answer? Exactly. Higher level of intelligence and consciousness, okay? So the more, go ahead, who else had something? A relationship to, because of the higher level of consciousness and intelligence, we have a better relationship with our dog than we do with an insect which has very little intelligence and very little consciousness. Carter. That's right, right. You can't step on a dog, at least not the, the little, the chihuahuas you're free to step on. Those are fair game. But, um, so, the higher the level of consciousness and the higher level of intelligence, here's the key, the more human it is like. That's why we talk about being humane to animals. Because while they're not made in the image of God, the reason it's the death penalty for killing a human being, according to Moses, is because that person is made in the image of God. And basically what you're doing is you're attacking the image of God himself, and God takes that seriously. So... That's, that's the difference between the two there. Um, so that's why you see a lot of Levitical law making a distinction between your cow and a grasshopper because they're more resemble the humans and have, have a more of a function for humans and a better relationship with humans. So the third point here, being fair, to humane, fair and humane to your family. Fair and humane to family. It says if brothers dwell together. So here's two, two guys who, are, who live in the same family complex, if you will, okay, because remember, families there live basically on what would be, resemble a plantation. So there'd be several homes within that walled area. Okay, So these brothers live maybe in separate houses, but together on the same property. And one of them dies and has no son. The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family. And this is implying he's, already, he's single. We're not asking him. The Bible would not ask him to take a second wife. If he's single, he sh the wife shouldn't have to go outside the family, now family doesn't mean the immediate family, that would be incest. It means the family as in the local clan. So you might have 800 people in this clan, okay? They should marry within their clan. Again, the Bible's not recommending you have to do that. It's saying that that's what the practice was. So why should she be forced to marry a total stranger who doesn't share her culture, let alone share her religion, okay? So remember in the book of Ruth, the near kinsman, Boaz was the nearest relative to the deceased husband, Ruth's deceased husband. So Boaz actually found out that there was some guy closer than her, and he wanted to be legal and upright. And he said, you know what, I'd be glad to marry you, and I'd be glad to take you as my wife and do the right thing. And we'll talk about why it's the right thing. But there's actually somebody technically closer than I am. Go talk to him first. If he says no, it's, it's good. And sure enough, God worked it out to where the other guy said, no, that's a whole other story. If you want to go back and it's all online where we went through the book of Ruth, it was a really great story there. Um, but here's what's going on here. 
having children meant everything to women and people and families during this time for several reasons. One, they, the more children you had, the, the, the more defensible your country was. If your population was declining and the population of the neighboring country was going up, guess what? You might have a war on the horizon. Remember, why did Pharaoh kill all the babies, all the male babies? Because the Jews were growing in so much population, he thought that he was going to be overrun by them. So having children was a good way to defend your country. Number, number two, it was a good way to run your farm. The more, the more kids you had, the more work could be done. And, and for better or for worse, a lot of times parents saw their kids as more workers, more workers. Doesn't mean they didn't love them. In some cases they didn't, but in many cases they obviously did. But number three, for Jews to have children was to carry on the lineage and eventually lead to the Messiah. And, and every Hebrew woman would hope that maybe she would be the great-great-grandmother of the Messiah. Or maybe my son would be the Messiah. That was the hope. So this was a big deal to have kids. And to, to have your husband die and you have no kids, that's like, oh my gosh. Because women, again, at this time in, in history, that's their primary job is having a household. And read Proverbs 31 see how busy that woman was. She did real estate. She did fabrics. She did all kinds of things, but her primary care was to her children, and to not have children was, was many cultures considered it a curse. The Bible didn't, because God always favored the, the barren woman. But anyway, it goes on to say, her husband's brother should go into her and take her as his wife. Don't just make a baby outside of wedlock. The Bible's not promoting that either. And take her as wife and perform the duty, in other words, to give her a child. To, and, and guess what? That child would not be named after him. Who would it be named after? the deceased brother. So his family name could carry on. The family name was so, so important to this culture. And again, in our Western mind, we're thinking it's all about me, myself, and I. It's my career. It's what I want to do. It's who I want to marry. It's where I want to live. It's all, and it's, I don't care if my family approves of it or not. Okay? And in America, we take the individualism way too far. And maybe you could say this culture takes it too far the other way. The Bible's not condoning it one way or another. It's just saying what you should do under these circumstances. Um, let's go here. Okay. And it says, And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of the dead brother. So that's where the kid gets his name. But watch this. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate, which was basically city hall, and talk to the elders, which was the, the city council, and say, her husband's brother shall... I'm oh, sorry. What did I, how did I get there? Here we go. This one. My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate, perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. See, that's, that was the priority here. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. This is what was called a Leverite marriage. There we go. And then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. So there's not like, okay, let's beat you now. It's like, hey, come on, man. Your brother would want you to do this, to carry on his name. It's the right thing to do. It's our custom for our culture. You need to do the right thing. You need to take her. But notice there was no law saying you have to and we're going to make you, okay? They, because if you make someone marry someone else, that's a, that's a recipe for a bad marriage, obviously. But the priority was to do the right thing for the family, for the sake of, the, of Israel, for the sake of your tribe. And, said, and if he says, you know what, I do not wish to take her. It's interesting in other translations, the KJV, it says, I like not to take her, okay? And then uh, the modern King James Version says, I do not desire to take her. And then the message says, I don't think she's a babe, so a hard pass on this one. I'm just kidding. I made that up, okay? 
I'm not a big fan of the message. But anyway, that's, that's probably not too far off, I imagine. <laughs> okay, so verse 9 says, Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders. Now, again, when you read something weird in the Bible, realize it's the culture. And before you look down your nose as, oh, we're superior Western middle, you know, middle class Americans. We know better than the rest of the world. Okay, this, is, this practice is still common in most of the world. Okay, she shall go up to him in the presence of the elders. She doesn't just walk up on the street and randomly do this and pull the sandal off his foot. Now, what is that about? Okay, realize people had basically one set of sandals at a time. Okay, and your sandals are very distinct. They kind of said who you were and people could even recognize you by your sandals. Okay, and the sandal was symbolic of walking on the property. So if I was going to buy some property from Rick, I would walk across the land and I'd, I'd, I'd see it and I'd say, tell you what, Rick, I think I want this. Here you go. And later, that's why I wore slip-ons today so I could do that illustration. Um, <laughs> later, if, somebody, if, if, if I said, you know, I didn't buy that land. Rick said, yes, he did. I got his sandal. And everybody's like, well, yeah, that's, of course that's Gary's sandal. Everybody recognizes that. So it was a, a very, you, you didn't go to the notary, <laughs> you didn't go to the title company, they didn't have those things. You took somebody's sandal and that was your proof that, no, he bought it from me, it's not my land. So don't sue me for what happened over there, or, and it works the other way around, he would have something in exchange for, for doing it. And on top of this, the universal symbol for disgrace, and some people still do this in America, is spit in his face. That was his punishment for not doing the right thing. He, he, the sandal meant, you know what? You lost out, bud. You, you, I could have been yours. And because I have your sandal, you can never claim this person again. Just like you couldn't claim property, you can't claim to me. I am off limits now. You had your chance. That's it. So if he ever comes back and says, oh, you know what? I'm the near kinsman. I have a right to marry her. She goes, no, you don't. And she has the sandal saying, you, you can't do that. And then she spits in his face and saying, hey, you wouldn't do the right thing. You wouldn't do the right thing for your brother's wife, your widow, you wouldn't do the right thing for your tribe, for your clan, and for your country. You didn't do the right thing. Now, why would a guy choose not to do this? Okay. Now, some of you, again, you're thinking American, like, well, I don't, we don't have anything in common. I want to marry someone who looks the way I want to look and acts the way I want to look, all that stuff. Do you realize there's still a large number of arranged marriages in the world that have a much, 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 much lower divorce rate than you Americans who pick your bride and pick your husband? Because you know what? Like I said before last week, making a marriage work is 30% selection. It's 70% commitment. And so you could agree or disagree whether parents should pick their, their kids, a spouse. But you know what makes those marriages work in the rest of the world? Is they say, this is the right thing. You stay married. You do it. And you learn to love that person who your parents picked or who was arranged or whatever. Again, I'm not condoning arranged marriage. And I'm not saying the other. I'm just saying that marriage is about you being committed to making it work. And so she spits in his face to say, you didn't do the right thing. And the name of his house, this is funny, shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> and in fact, probably in the most literal say, it means the house of the one with the unshod foot. The, the house of him with the unshod foot. So what you do is you'd be, you'd be in downtown Bethlehem and say, hey, how do I get to, to the city gate? Go down the street here, turn left at the unshod foothouse, and go two more blocks. And that people just know, because it was basically a disgrace because this guy did not love his country enough. And so this is something you see, and again, a lot of people in America, and it's mostly in American Western Europe, that we think we're so smart than the rest of the world that we get this mindset 
that's so individualistic that you have people reading the Bible going, oh, that doesn't make any sense. That's stupid. And they dismiss it without taking the time to put yourself in an Eastern mindset, which is very much family. It's a very much an honor-shame culture. You marry based on who your family would approve. You don't disgrace your family by marrying a knucklehead. You marry and you do, you choose a career, what's best for the family. And there's, again, there's a balance there. I think we're too selfish on the other side. A case can be made that maybe that's too far the other way. Um, Then the next one, fair and humane, avoiding excessive force. Avoiding excessive force. So what this is implying here is that force is sometimes necessary. If someone busts down your front door and comes in your house ready to hurt your family, you are, are, you are allowed to use force to, to appease the threat, to put away the threat. And so here's two men that are fighting, and, the, the, and it doesn't say, notice it doesn't say where this is happening. Because there's, a, there's a, a doctrine in universal law around the world called castle doctrine. Never heard of that, castle doctrine? A man's home is his castle. You have a right to defend your castle. So if someone's on your property doing something to harm you, you have the right to use force. If it's out in the street off your property, there's a different set of laws. This doesn't say where this is happening, okay? And it doesn't even say why it's happening. Two guys get in a fight. We don't know if it's over a cow or that went astray and it's mine. No, it's yours. and No, I mean, no it's not mine or whatever. Um, anyway, but one guy's beating the other and he's winning the fight. And she wants to rescue her husband. And didn't you enjoy reading this, Ryan? Didn't this... Anyway, so I, don't, I still want to know who said amen. Was it? Anyway, and it says she puts out her hand. She seizes him by the private parts like her dad taught her to do, I guess. Then you will cut off her hand. Wow. Okay, now you say, Gary, this is really weird. This is bizarre. Okay, again, but put it in context. This is for Israel into the promised land. This does not mean you have to do this today. This was a nation in wartime situation. Number one. If she did that to the guy, would he be able to go into battle the next day? No, maybe not for a long time. Also, what's the big priority in Israel? Having children, making babies. She could destroy his opportunity to ever have children, which could possibly mess up the line of the Messiah, hypothetically, but God is sovereign. But there, it was a very serious offense. Notice also what it didn't say. It didn't say you can't get a shovel and knock him in the head. It didn't say it. It didn't say you can't kick him in the ribs four times to get him off your husband. It just says you, it's basically, this is what's called case law. I mean, if you read through Deuteronomy, you think, man, that seems random. Basically, what it's saying is take this principle here for this scenario and you can apply it to other similar scenarios. Okay? You don't want to use excessive force. For example, there was a case in Louisiana and Hiroshi Atari. He was a Japanese foreign exchange, exchange student, sorry, and, uh, and he, w- he was new, his English wasn't very good, and he was invited to a Halloween party. Him and his friend and other foreign exchange students knocked on the wrong door, the next door. Well, they're in costume, and, and they knock on the door, and nobody answers. So the wife isn't sure. She peeks out the window, and she doesn't recognize these people, and they're not expecting company. So she goes around to the side to see, like, what cars in the driveway. Well, Hiroshi goes around to the side and sees her and starts walking towards her because he thinks maybe she's saying, come in this way. So she runs in the house and tells the husband, get the guns. There's people trying to get in our house. So the husband comes out in the front, and Hiroshi and his friend are walking away because they think nobody's going to answer the door. Well, he opens the door. Then they turn on and start walking towards him, and he's like, freeze. And he has a gun. Hiroshi doesn't understand any English, and he thinks this is a gag. It's a Halloween party, so he's dressed up you know, maybe like a bad guy with a gun. He keeps walking towards him, gets shot to death. 
So there was a case. Did the husband have to shoot him? He's in a Halloween costume, you know, and he wasn't, he didn't pull out a gun and he did pull out a phone to try to get some light to see what was going on. And so it was like, really, was it necessary to shoot the kid? You know, and so just so you know, the criminal case, the owner was found not guilty that he was defending his home and he didn't know that these two guys weren't trying to kill him. But that on the civil case, Hiroshi's parents sued and won $650,000 because he lost the criminal case. So kind of an interesting story. But what the Bible is saying here is don't overdo it. Use as much force as necessary to stop what's happening. So for example, if someone was in a fight in your front yard and you went off and tried to defend somebody and you punched them and you knocked them to the ground and they get up and run away, you don't chase them. You don't shoot them in the back. You don't just keep pounding them, pounding them, pounding them. You know, uh, someone's trying to steal just something out of your yard. They're not even trying to hurt you, but they're trying to steal something out of your yard. Would you say you would shoot them for that? You know, the, so the Bible's trying, the principle here is not that we're trying to get into weird things, grabbing people in weird places and cutting off hands. It's trying to say, don't use excessive force. And again, what's interesting about this is you can find nowhere in Jewish history where a woman had her hand cut off. It's because they just didn't do it. It was a deterrent. So, again, I'm not saying it didn't happen. You just can't find a record of it. <clears throat> so, what is excessive force? Doing more than is necessary to stop a crime. Okay? And you know what? That, the principle there is, let's say someone at your job does something wrong. And you go overboard with gossip and trashing their name and doing all that stuff and publicly humiliating them. That would be excessive force. The Bible's saying... That's why people get all upset when the Bible talks about eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. It's not saying literally you have to do those things. It's saying make sure the punishment meets the crime. That's what it's talking about. And then, so what are the alternatives? Again, you could prepare yourself. I, I am all pro Second Amendment, but I am very much also pro that you take courses and classes that you know how to handle difficult situations so that you don't shoot someone that shouldn't be shot and you feel bad about it for the rest of your life. What are... and um. And why amputation? Again, a deterrent. Because they're, they're, this is a nation at war. We can't afford to lose casualties from infighting. We're going to make sure that nobody would ever choose to do this in the first place. Let's go to the next one here. These last few will go by pretty quick. Fair and humane in business practices. So it talks about weights and measures. You buy produce, you put something on the scale, you got weights. But if you're going to buy something that is three yards long, you're going to use a measuring stick. That's what measuring means here. And so what dishonest people do is they'd have two. One that would for buying and one for selling. You know, the buying one would be longer or heavier. The selling one would be shorter or way less so that you'd not spend so much when you're buying and make it, scam the person, make more profit when you're selling. And so it was just dishonest in business practices. And, and let me ask you something. Do we do that today? Do people cook the books? Do people short sell stocks? Do people uh, do all kinds of um, pyramid schemes and all kinds of stuff? Man, more than ever. And the Bible says, as God's people, let it never be so. I know one guy who told me, he said, you know, you just can't stay in business unless you do this one illegal thing we were talking about. He said, you just can't even succeed. I said, you know what? You can with God's help. A right is never, you, um, it's never right to do wrong. You don't do something illegal because all your competitors are doing it. 
You do the right thing and let God take care of it. And you, you do business better and more honest, and you do what you have to do to make sure everything is fair. Even if nobody would ever know, God knows. God knows, and he's the one who wants you to do that. And he says, look at this, that your days may be long in the land. And you know what? In our Western American mindset, we say, oh, that means I will live long on my piece of property. It's not what he's talking about. In, in Hebrew, this could be y'all. Y'all will dwell long in the promised land. If you treat one another honestly in business practices, your economy will boom, and you will be successful, you'll be prosperous, and all that stuff. And you know, in, in, um, in Romania, prior to, uh, at the end of World War II, people were so used to all the corruption from the communists that nobody believed anybody about anything. And everything, the whole economy crumbled because nobody could trust anybody because lying was so prevalent. Whereas if the opposite is true, if you're honest to one another and you know you can trust one another in business, you don't have to always be second-guessing things on stuff, but you trust one another, God would bless that economy and keep them in the promised land even longer. He says, for all who do such things, who, all who act dishonestly are an abomination. Wow. God doesn't say it's a small offense when you cheat on your taxes. God doesn't think it's a small offense when you overcharge a, a client and they'll never know. God says, that makes me sick. That's disgusting in my sight. So let's, we should take it seriously as well. Fair and humane, unlike your enemies. And here specifically he's talking about Amalek. Remember Amalek. What's, this, what's the old line? Those who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. He said, hey, here's a lesson from history I don't want you to ever forget. Remember Amalek? Now, who was Amalek? If you do a little Bible study, you'll find out that he was a descendant of Esau. So Jacob and Esau, remember Israel is, is Jacob's descendants. Esau is all the other pagan nations. So these are actually second cousins, if you will. And he says, and remember what he did to you. You're coming out of Egypt. You are former slaves. You're on your way to the promised land. And you're just wanting to pass through. You're telling countries, hey, we're not here to bother you. We just want to, can we have permission to pass through? In fact, we've got plenty of gold and silver. We'll pay for everything we eat and every water. You guys can make money off of this if you'll let us pass through. And so what happened here? Amalek said, not only am I not going to let you pass through, he attacked you on the way and you were faint and weary. These people were tired. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They don't have an army. They don't have anything. They just recovered as slaves. They're walking through. And Amalek decides, I'm big and powerful. In fact, Amalek was the most powerful Palestinian tribe in the whole area. And this was a case of someone picking on someone smaller. This is basically national bullying that's going on here. And he says, he cut off your tail. What does that mean? Well, those who were lagging behind. So imagine, you know, 1.2 million people walk trekking across the land traveling on this just journey, the old, the tired, the crippled, what are they going to be doing? They're going to be lagging behind. So guess who Amalek decided to attack? He didn't want to take on the men who were leading the way. He's going to go take on the old ladies, the babies, the crippled people. Isn't that what bullies do? You know, the say, saying, pick on someone your own size. And, and you know what? I, someone said to my kids, we were at camp, and they said, what school do you go to? And they said, we're homeschooled. And they said, oh, man, you're so lucky. And they said, why, why are we lucky? And they said, because you don't have to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and you don't have to put up with bullies. So, hey, kids, when you're in school and you see someone bullying, don't look the other way. Stand up to them. Say, hey, leave them alone. And you know what? Even if it means you get pushed down, speak up. Because the Bible says, hey, remember Amalek and how he treated you? 
don't be that way. You need to fear God, because Amalek certainly didn't fear God. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, and were at that time they were the most powerful race in the peninsula. And here they took their position as the chief of the pagans, and they were also the first among the pagans who attacked God's people. And as such, they were marked out for punishment. God says, I don't put up with that kind of stuff. I'm going to wipe Amalek off the face of the earth. And that was what Saul's job was. And Saul, get this now, Saul was supposed to wipe out everybody. What did he do? He, cared, he spared the king, and he spared uh, some of the cattle and things like that. And God said, no, that's not the way you deal with bad sin. You wipe it out. Let me ask you a question. What is the sin in your life that you're tolerating? You're allowing a little bit to survive when God's saying, hey, wipe that out. That's what the lesson is about. Verse 19 says, therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies, when you get in the promised land, you've defeated all your enemies, everybody's leaving you alone because they know that God's on your side and God is around you and in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall, not, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. In other words, let's not talk about Amalek. Let's not say oh, what a great hero he was and what a powerful empire he was. I don't want to hear that. His punishment is going to be, he was a bully. That's, we're not talking about him. We're going to put him behind. And you don't forget that. 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-six 26 says, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. Isn't that what Jesus said? Which, whatever measure you measure towards other people, it will be measured against you. So if you're merciful to other people, like people say, hey, man, I'm sorry. And you're like, oh, you, you should be. And you still give them the cold shoulder. How's God going to treat you? With a blameless man, you show yourself blameless. When you try to be honest and above reproach, God says, okay, I'm going to shoot straight with you too. With the purified, you deal purely. But watch this. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You choose to be dishonest. You choose to do the wrong thing. You're picking on someone more than just another human being. You're picking a fight with God. God says you reap what you sow. And be sure your sin will find you out. And see, people say, well, that's Old Testament. I just quoted you New Testament. <laughs> it's Galatians that says you reap what you sow. Okay? Now, it worked, but again, God will deal kindly with you and mercifully and purely with you. And it says, watch in verse 28. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. When you get full of pride, when you become arrogant, when you think, I've got this, I am a self-made man, I am a successful woman, I can do this on my own, God says, fix and knock your feet out from under you. I'm going to show you who's God, and it's not you. God, God blesses humble people, and that's what God is teaching here. Look at, look at all this list here and say, man, this seems so random. What do any of these have to do with anything? Okay? Well, first of all, the theme is being fair and humane. But watch this. Fair and humane with corporal punishment. Did Jesus get only 39 with a rod? No. He got a whole lot more. For approximately 56 hours, he was being beaten repeatedly. Beaten with lashes, with cat and nine tail, beaten with sticks, punched in the face, beard plucked out, crown of thorns, nails. And what did he do wrong? Absolutely nothing. In fact, they treated him like number two, less than an animal. They didn't even show the same kindness that they would, should show to an animal that they showed to our Savior. Were they fair and humane to his family? When someone died, they would take their robe and fold it up like you would a flag and present it to the mother. 
And what did they do instead? They gambled for his clothes. And did they use excessive force on Jesus? Absolutely. In fact, he didn't deserve one lick, let alone all that he got. They weren't even fair in, their, in the business of doing justice. Every Nighttime trials were illegal. He had three. You had to confirm everything by two or three witnesses. They had none. No corroborating witnesses. They contradicted each other left and right. And yet they went forward with an unfair injustice towards our Savior. And then when the Bible says, don't be like your enemies, they treated God as if he's enemy. And they treated Jesus Christ as if he was the threat. I just want to show you just a small clip from the Passion about what Jesus went through. But I will just tell you, I'm going to stop it short because there's kids in the room, but you can fill in the blank. That's what Christ went through for you and me. And my, one of the most moving parts of that movie, and it, the scripture doesn't say it, but it could be very accurate. It was one part where Jesus collapsed on his, to his knees from the beating. And they were laughing like, we, we got him, we got him. And he rose to his feet and he stood up like, keep going. You talk about the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It's amazing what Jesus went through. When the Bible talks about these things, even in Deuteronomy 25, such a weird passage, just like everything else in the Bible, it's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the cross. It says in John chapter 19, Then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. That was with you know, the cat of nine tails, which um, had bones and glass and metal all in it to rip flesh apart. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. These weren't little like rose thorns. These were typically two and a half to three inches long that pierced his scalp. And they put it on his head, and they arrayed him in a purple robe to mock him as a king. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. What kind of messed up world is this? You just beat him, but you're saying he's innocent. Why are you beating an innocent man? Well, they thought they were in control and that Jesus was the victim. But the truth is, Jesus is sovereign. He said, no man takes my life from, from me. I freely lay it down. 
Jesus gave his back to the smiters. He gave his cheek to those who would punch him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says this, For God has not destined us, believers in Christ, for wrath. You see, we should have been the ones getting the beating. We're the ones who deserve the punishment, the 40 lashes. We're the ones that deserve all that. But instead, we are to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. When you see that clip, and if you haven't watched the movie The Passion, you should. But you see everything that Jesus went through and realize that should have been Gary. That should have been fill in your name. But he loved you so much, he traded places. Has anybody loved you that much? It says, so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're still alive or we're dead in the grave, that we might live forever with him. Do you realize the cross? I've been reading posts on on the internet. People are saying, what's up with all these blood sacrifices? Why, Why is Christianity so obsessed with blood? It's because it should have been your blood and Jesus took your spot. So that's why we sing about nothing can wash away my sin except the blood of Jesus. It took someone dying for me so that I would not die eternally, be separated from God forever. Do you know Jesus? Have you ever accepted this gift? Think about a gift. You don't buy it. You didn't get it because you worked for it. It's just because someone loves you and they're offering it to you. You know what's sad in this world? People are like, oh no, I'm good. I don't want your gift, which is an insult to the maker. It's an insult to the one giving it. Why not humble yourself and just simply receive the gift? Not because you're good enough, not because you're rich enough, but simply because you're a sinner in need of a Savior and He offers His life for you. Do you know Him? I would like for everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes if you, if you would, please. I would like to ask for believers and followers of Christ to pray and ask God to open hearts and minds. But I want to speak to you today that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm not asking, are you religious? I'm not asking, do you read your Bible and go to church? I'm asking, have you been born again? You know your first birthday. Have you had a second birthday where Jesus Christ became the Lord of your life because you put your faith and trust in him? You believed in his death, burial, and resurrection as your only hope of salvation. If you've never made that decision, you've never given your life to Christ, I want you to do that right now. You can. Why not have a conversation with him right now? I'm going to just pray a prayer. You could pray something like this in your own words, in your own heart. The the words don't save you. It's your faith. But you could pray something like this. Father, thank you so much for sending Christ in my place on my cross to bear my crown and to take my nails. I think of all the things I've done that are selfish and evil, and I deserve that punishment. But Jesus loved me so much. He took my place. So, Lord Jesus, I put my faith in you right now. Thank you for forgiving all my sins, past, present, and future. I give my life to you. You be in control. You be the Lord because you gave your all for me. And I trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you, if you made that decision, man, I would love to hear from you. Please, this is my cell phone. Call or text me anytime. I'd love to talk to you about taking your next steps as a new believer. Um, in a moment, we're going to actually right now, we're going to do question and answers. Um, Sophia's like, Amanda, would you like to help me with this? Good. I know I can put a man on the spot. She'll say yes. Um, here we go. All right, and feel free to text it at any time, number right there. Especially if you're watching line, you can do that. And if you'd rather just raise your hand and ask, you certainly can. 
But all the questions will be anonymous. I don't ask who read it, who sent it in. So you can even send one in anonymously. I don't understand the two or three witnesses thing. Perpetrate wrongdoing to others, almost always do it where no one can see. If you witness something or know something to be true, how is it that not how is it that not enough to do something about it? Hopefully, I, oh. if you witness something or know something to be true, how is it that not enough to do something about it? It seems morally wrong to me to not do something about it. Letting a wrong go or looking the other way is kind of like condoning the offense. Great. So we have to make a distinction here. There's a legal level and there's a interpersonal level to press charges against someone, two or three witnesses. Now, even in our own legal system, we count video as a witness. We count DNA as a witness. We count circumstantial evidence as a witness. So if you've got an eyewitness and circumstantial witness or evidence, you can even have two circumstantial evidences, and those will count as two witnesses. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But let's say you only got one. Let's say someone walked up to you and punched you in the face and walked away, and nobody saw it. According to the law, again, this is Deuteronomy law, you, you, don't, you, don't, you can't press charges, okay? Um, you're, you're your own witness, but you can't say how you got the black eye, or you can't prove that. And so, but that doesn't mean you can't do anything on an interpersonal level. You don't condone what they did. It means, you know what, I know what you did, you know what you did. And until you uh, make things right, don't even step foot on my property or whatever. So, so there's a difference in interpersonal relationships and doing something about it on that level versus doing something where you take it to a higher level of some type of authority. You can't ask people to say, well, it's your word against his word. Why should we take your word? Because how many times have we seen where people lie? Um, there was a teacher, a male teacher in New Jersey that gave a couple of girls a zero on a test because he caught them cheating. Well, all of a sudden, they jumped up accusations of him touching them inappropriately. This man lost his job. He lost his wife and his family. He lost his house. He lost everything. And six years later, both girls confessed that they made the whole thing up. So why should we take someone's word against someone else's word without witnesses? So that's what the Bible is trying to protect you from an, a, a system and false accusations. And so you've got to put yourself under the sovereignty of God. Why would God allow this to happen? With just one witness, I don't know, but that doesn't mean you can't do something about it. We're not talking about taking justice in your hands. We're talking about interpersonal relationship. That's why the Bible says, Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek. That, what kind of relationship is that? Interpersonal. But then Paul could say the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. In other words, capital punishment is still. So in other words, if someone molested one of my kids, I can forgive them and say, I can go to jail and visit them and say, if, you know, I know that you know, uh, if you seek Jesus Christ, he'll save you, and I don't hold a grudge for you. I, don't, I wish you don't go to hell. I, in fact, I wish you would find Jesus. And I have forgiven them. But guess what? The state of Texas is still keeping them in prison for 22 years. There's no, there's no contradiction there because one's an interpersonal relationship, one's a legal relationship. That's how you can obey both. Um, in fact, that's why in old English law, the, the cases would be Milborn versus Avila. But in the United States, it's Avila versus the state of Texas. Because I can forgive Amanda, and I have forgiven you, Amanda, just let you know. No. Um, 
But the state still enforces the punishment, and I can turn the other cheek, and yet the state still do its job. There's no, that, that's what Deuteronomy is trying to say. Next one. Okay. What age is too young for a child to understand and accept the gospel? How would we know if a child's expression of faith is real? That's a great question, and there is no magic number. Some denominations have tried to say 9 and 12, and they put an actual number on it. I don't know how they would know. Um, all I know is, oh, man, I'm t what time is it? I don't want to give you too long of an answer. No, we're good. We're really good on time. Okay, we're actually ahead of schedule. Um, so um, in order to be saved and to be baptized, by the way, which baptism is not your salvation, it's, it's your public profession of your salvation, Nowhere in the Bible were babies ever baptized. In fact, the opposite is. He told the Ethiopian, Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch, you can't get baptized until you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and, and your Savior. And he said, I do. Okay, let's get baptized. So that's why we don't baptize babies. So um, a child needs to understand, number one, they, have, a, they have, have offended a holy God and deserve his wrath. Well, that right there is something I don't think a two-year-old can get. Okay. And probably not a three-year-old. I heard someone the other day say they got saved at three. I'm like, that's between you and God. That's kind of rare. Uh, my son, Adrian, got saved when he was five. And, man, I, was, I didn't want to be – I asked him over and over again all kinds of questions, trying to trip him up, and he just got everything right. He truly seemed repentant for hitting his sister and all the things he had done. And even though his, 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 his uh, rap sheet wasn't that long up to this point, I gave him off to an, the oldest, wisest man in Berean Baptist Church and said, would you talk to my son? And he talked to him and talked to him, and he came to me and said, I think he's saved. You know what? Adrian has never questioned his salvation, and now he pastors a church in northwest Arkansas and is preaching the gospel and is one of the godliest men I know. So there, you, there it is. Gary said five. <laughs> no, I'm not saying five. I'm just saying everybody's different. I, you could take someone who's mentally handicapped. They may not know until they're 19 or 26 or ever. Okay, um, so uh, let me give you one more thing on that. Have you noticed how a two-year-old, and they do this when you have company, will get out of the bathtub and run naked through the house and not even care, right? And they're just like, woo, they're very proud of their birthday suit, right? But then something happens at six, seven, eight. Mom, mom, give me a towel. He's looking at me. Ah, get out, get out, get out. And they do not want to be seen naked. I believe God has given that to us. This is my theory, okay? that God has given that to us as a barometer because when did Adam and Eve know that they had sinned when they realized they were naked? The two go hand. They realized they were sinners and they realized they were naked at the same time. Prior to that, they're like, hey, birthday suit, we don't care, make babies. They didn't care. But then all of a sudden, they were hidden themselves and they were naked because they were sinned. So I think when your child becomes aware they're a sinner is when they'll become ashamed of their nakedness and God's saying, it's time. That's my theory, so I'm sticking to it. That's okay, no problem. Here's one right here. Okay, all right. Um, this is more, oh, no, this is a question. Okay, back then, if someone was caught doing a crime and beat publicly, were they still accepted as a member of society or shunned afterwards? There's nothing in Deuteronomy or anywhere in the Old Testament says to shun them, and so they should be accepted back in society. Now, whether people did or not, I don't know. That's people's choices, but... The, the, prince, the biblical principle is, hey, he did his punishment. Forget it now. It's, it's gone. It's done. Accept him back in society. That's the implication there. There's no commandment. But that's, that's what I love about this chapter is 
boom, it's done. It's over with. Let's move on. Let's all move on as a country. Let's move on as a people. You move on as a person. We're not trying to degrade you, but you can't go around doing this kind of stuff and not have consequences. So I, I think that's what was implied there. Um, if the universe goes on forever, is it still being made? When, and when they say it goes on forever, they don't mean time-wise, like it will go on forever. They mean um, expanding, that the universe oh, is ever expanding. Okay, okay. I would say, so therefore, um, is it still being made? Wow. That, I, I don't feel qualified to give an answer for that. Okay. Uh, my, my, my um, what's the word? My speculation would be that God spoke the worlds into existence and it was done. So therefore, he's not continuing to speak the world in existence. I believe the universe is ever expanding, but I don't, because the, the universe is infinite. So therefore, it's expanding, not necessarily new material being created. Hmm. But that's totally my unscientific opinion. Any others? Yes. Is okay. a lawyer committing a sin if they're defending someone that they know is guilty? Oh, awesome question. Okay, so understand this, that when you go to law school, uh, your first year, the professor's job is to totally destroy everything, every moral framework you have. Okay, this is not my opinion. You, just, you can read up all on, on it, okay? If you come in with a, a, a Jewish background, a Muslim background, a Christian background, or whatever background, their job is to totally destroy that, and you don't determine what's right and wrong based on how you grew up. You determine right and wrong based on the system. And you will hear your first year in law school, the system, the system, the system. And so when you see a court case just ends in downtown Houston and the lawyers walk out and they rush up with microphones and they'll say, they'll say so how, why, do, why do you think they came back with this verdict? Well, the system worked. Or they'll say the system didn't work. Or that's the system. The system has become God. And the, the system, not God, not you, the system determines right and wrong. And so therefore, if I'm, a, if I'm a, a defense attorney and I know for a fact my lawyer, my, my defendant, and because he told me off the record, yeah, I killed him, you know, and I don't care. I slit their throat and I watched them die. And he knows this. He doesn't answer to God in his mind. He answers to the system. And the system says everybody deserves a fair trial. My job is to defend them. Your job is to prosecute them. And if, if he, this guy that I know is, found, is, is guilty is found innocent, I did my job, you didn't do yours, that's the system. And that's why they can supposedly sleep at night because they worship the system, they don't worship God. Now, let's say you're a Christian attorney and this guy's told you, hey, yeah, I did it, whatever, and you know he did. Say, okay, here's what we need to do. We need to plea bargain. You're, you're saying you did it. You need to tell the judge you did it. And instead of getting executed, he might give you life or he might give you 40 years or something. But life will be better for you if you will simply tell the truth. And you do see that happen now. You see plea bargains happen often. And that's basically saying, hey, let's skip dragging the family through this court case for a year and a half. Let's just go skip to the chase, confess it. And because you've confessed it and made it easier on the family and easier on the system, we'll go ahead and reduce your sentence to whatever. Okay? So I think there is a way. But that's how... So to answer your question, yes, I believe they're sinning. Uh, I don't think that's a contradiction to the Constitution to urge your defendant to plea bargain and go with what you know. This is, this is just a comment. I am a mom and grandmother, and then she names these people. I live in South Dakota, and this is my second week of watching church online. And I enjoy the singing and enjoy the sermon, 
pastor explains everything in ways that are easy to understand. Thank you for being there for my family. Blessings to all of you. Did you say South Dakota? Mm-hmm. Very good. Let's give them a hand for watching online. That's awesome. That's great. We're, we're so glad you're watching. Maybe we can connect later and you can tell me more about your story. All right, cool. So let's, Matt, if you'd go to the next slide for me. If you all would stand. Again, if you're a first-time guest, we have a gift for you at the table there if you haven't gotten it already. And you all be sure to be friendly and meet our first-time people and go to the verse of Scripture there. We're going to read this verse of Scripture. This is our commission to us as the church to go out into the world and be the church, okay? Read this with me. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.